I am excited this Sunday to start a sermon series on the parables. I've wanted to preach the parables for a long time. It just hasn't fit, I haven't felt called to it, or I've preached a parable here or there to sort of scratch that itch, but now I am really ready to launch into a series. So, we're going to be doing parables of Jesus through, uh, with some interruptions through October. So we're going to be really looking at how Jesus taught. And it's fun because Jesus uses parables to teach all kinds of things and on all kinds of topics. Today I want to do an introduction to parables, talk a little bit about why Jesus speaks in parables, and then we'll do one as an example. The word parable literally means to throw alongside. It has this this sense of throwing. So you throw things side by side and compare them. So the parables are sometimes metaphors, sometimes just really simple, sometimes they're more story form, and that's the way we think of parables. But really, whether it's a story or just an image or a a metaphor, um, it's the same idea. Jesus is throwing two things side by side and asking us to compare them. Sometimes he's using earthly things to compare really heavenly things, but most of the time he's using earthly things to, to talk about other earthly things. The parables are really about how you live life and how life works. And Jesus uses all kinds of very ordinary, common things to teach. They're not common to us 2,000 years later when Jesus says a shepherd. We don't know what a shepherd is. We have not really seen a shepherd. That's an image that's distance to, distance to us. Today we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan. We don't know what a Samaritan is. We don't know what it's like to travel those roads and to be in that context. So we've got to do a little bit of work to get into them. But Jesus' idea was to use common, ordinary things to throw them alongside each other. And Jesus taught with parables often. We have a number of his parables. And even we have record of the disciples asking Jesus why he speaks so much in parables. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. Remember this parable? There's there's a sower sowing seed and some falls on the path, some falls among the weeds, some falls on the good soil. And they ask him this question starting in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning not to us. He would explain stuff to them. But to the normal world, he would often speak in parables. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus continues, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
That's really clear, right? Jesus almost answers why he preached his parables with practically another parable. It's not altogether clear. He goes on to explain specifically the parable of the sower. But for us, we're still left with a little bit of a question. Jesus, I'm not sure you really told us why you preach in parables. First of all, we, got, we have to understand that Jesus really does tell stories that were simple and universal in their day. They're harder for us because it's 2,000 years later. If I went to tell you a very common story and I referred to a cell phone, people in Jesus' day would have no clue about it because they had no idea what a cell phone is. It's a different culture. It's a different time. So we've got to do a little bit of work for it. But, but for the most part, Jesus' parables aren't that hard to understand if you're in those days. And I don't think that Jesus is saying that his parables are meant to be a secret. I think what Jesus is saying is that you have to wrestle with the parables to understand them. You have to have your eyes open a little bit. And once your eyes are open, then you get closer to God. And you start to see the parables a little more, a little deeper, a little clearer. There, you have to wrestle with them, though. I think that we have made parables too simple. We've made the parables really simple, and they're not. We've made them really ethical kind of things, right? This is a, we're going to talk today about the Good Samaritan, and that has like an obvious lesson, right? You're supposed to be nice to your neighbor. But when you actually read the parable, and we're going to do it in a few minutes, you're going to find it's a lot more complicated than that. There's often an ethical lesson, but there's often more than that. We've tried to make the parables make one point. How many stories do you tell that make one point? Often our stories don't even have points. They're just stories. Stories that hang on to you. Stories that, that make you think. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. You don't just hear a parable and understand it. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to chew on it. You've got to marinate in it a little bit. It's not just teaching ethics, but often Jesus uses parables to teach faith. To teach theology. To change your worldview. Pastor Matt Chandler out of Texas talks about how parables deconstruct the way you see the world and then reconstruct them in a new way. Deconstruct and reconstruct. So the parables are never just go and be a good person. They're meant to change the way you think. And so you've got to do some work to get into the story. You've got to a little bit embrace the ambiguity of the story. And just marinate in it. This is a really important point, I think, because I think this really should shape how we read Scripture. For a long time, we have called the Bible the inspired Word of God. Boom, there it is, the Word of God. I wonder if we should make that plural and start talking about the inspired words of God. Maybe all the words are important and we ought to pay attention to the words. Jesus is a masterful storyteller. And when Jesus puts a detail in the story, he does so for a reason. So when we read the story, we've got to just not read it quickly. Not assume that we've read the story a bunch of times. We've got to pay attention to the actual details that are there. So, for example, today, I want to look at the Good Samaritan, probably the most popular and most well-known of Jesus' parables. It's in Luke chapter 10. I would encourage you to get out your Bible or your cell phone and turn there. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. I, would, I really think you ought to follow. Good Samaritan is such common language that we have 
organizations that use the term Samaritan, hospitals that are called Samaritan. Um, there's even a law in place where if you go to help somebody with CPR or something like that and, uh, and they, they don't make it, you're not able to get sued. It's called the Good Samaritan Law in common language. But I want to look at this parable and see if we can open up the meaning. Thicken the plot just a little bit. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Lawyer comes to Jesus. Lawyers in those days aren't lawyers like they are today. Lawyers in those days typically were interpreters of the law that was the scriptures. When you have a Jewish lawyer, they're involved in the rules of the scripture. Okay? So this is very much up the lawyer's alley to ask this kind of question. This kind of legal question. He stands up to put him to the test. I often have wondered why Luke, how Luke knows that the person's intention is to put Jesus to the test. And then I did a little bit of background and I found a very important detail here. The text says a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. In those days, the, a teacher would normally sit to teach. And everybody else would sit around them, lower than them. It was a, it was a point of respect. The teacher sat, and the student sat lower than the teacher. So when this lawyer stands up, it's automatically a conflict with Jesus. Automatically, he's questioning, trying to put himself over Jesus. And he asks a question that was much debated in, in Jesus' time. What shall I do? What's the most important law? If you had to boil the law down and sum it up, what would it be? Another time that they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers this way. Here, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a trap even in that question. Because not all the Jews believed in eternal life. Some believed that you would move on and others thought you were just dead. There was a whole debate about whether there is resurrection, whether, whether there is eternal life. So even in the question, the lawyer is trying to trap Jesus. Because if he answers a certain way, he's going to get everybody mad. Jesus answers the question with a question. Which is very much how Jesus teaches and it's very much how rabbis would teach. And even rabbis teach to this day. We think of teachers having answers to questions. The Jewish way of thinking is that teachers have better questions than your questions. Teachers have deeper questions. So Jesus asks him a question, and the lawyer gives the good Sunday school kind of answer, right? That's the role, these are the rules that everybody would have summed up. Nobody would have disagreed with. And Jesus does not refer to eternal life. Notice he doesn't get in that trap. He just says, do that and you will live. Continuing the text. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, see, the lawyer gets up, stands up and challenges Jesus. And Jesus asks him a question back, and the lawyer gives like a first-rate answer. 
And Jesus said, there it is. So the lawyer looks dumb. The lawyer looks really dumb because the lawyer asked a question that had a first grade answer. So the lawyer needing to justify himself in front of all these people, having been put back in his place, says, and who is my neighbor? And that was another debate of Jesus' day. My neighbor is obviously other Jews, but would it involve the Romans too? Do I have to love them? Do I have to love the Samaritans? Do I have to love the people that are opposed to me? That's the question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replies with a story, but what you'll find is that if you read the story, he actually tells the story to ask the man another question. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this was a pretty common trail. Jerusalem is up on a mountain. Jerusalem is very high in the air. So anywhere you go from Jerusalem is down. So they're going down to Jericho. They're heading south. And this man is walking along. And he's beaten. He's robbed. He's stripped. Why are so many details? There's one important detail not listed of the man. The man's ethnicity is not listed. A man is going down. Is this a Roman? Is this a Jew? What kind of man is this? That's a really important question for this, for this ultimate debate of who's my neighbor. Notice these stripped. So not only do I not, not only can I not tell, I don't know in the story, who the man is, what ethnicity he is. He's not wearing any clothes because those have been stolen. He, I have no marker on the outside of him. Is this a Jew? Is this a Roman? I don't know because I can't see his clothes. In fact, he's beaten, which means he's probably really, really beat up. And I can't tell by looking at this person. Jesus is going out of his way to make sure there's no way we can tell what ethnicity, what background this person is. It's just a person, a generic person, and we can't tell who it is. Jesus continues the story. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now a couple of important details. Priests, for the most part, worked in Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. They didn't live there. Most of them lived in Jericho. In fact, the, the city they were, the, this road goes to was more than half the priests and their families. Okay, so probably this priest has done his work. You'd normally be there for several days working at the temple and then come back. And so he's on his way home from several days being away. And he sees this man. Jesus makes sure there's no question. He doesn't, oh, I didn't see him. No, no, no. He sees the man move to the other side of the road to keep away from him. Now, you have to understand that there's really an ethical dilemma for this priest. We, we see this priest and we think this, this person's so terrible. But in reality, there's a, there's a big dilemma for this priest. If he goes over to somebody who's bloody and wounded, that person is unclean. They're naked. Naked and dirty, and I don't know what ethnicity they are. If as a priest you go over and help this man, do you know what you have to do? You have to go back to Jerusalem to go through cleansing rituals before you can come home. Okay? So he is putting his holiness in doubt by going over to this person. 
Okay, he, there's, there's really an ethical dilemma here for this priest. So, so it's not a matter of should I help this person or not. The priest has a question. Is it more important to follow God's laws or to help this person? Now think about that. If I frame it that way, now we really have a dilemma, right? Because actually God's laws are important and God's holiness is important. So he's got this dilemma and he chooses... I'm going to go on the other side of the road, and I'm going to choose to be holy and be God's, and to be set apart rather than helpless man. Okay? That's what every priest should have and would have done. So likewise, continuing the text, a Levite, when he came to the same place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levites worked for the priests. Okay? This was a person that probably works not as a priest, but helped out in the temple. In fact, this might have been a Levite actually assigned to the priest that's walking ahead of him. The Levite very very well likely may have known that the priest had traveled by. So now the Levite has has a dilemma. He knows the laws. He knows that he's not supposed to touch this person. At the same time, he probably knows that the priest walked by and didn't touch him. So if he helps out the priest, if he helps out the man, he makes the priest look bad. Or he gets in trouble by the priest who tells him he shouldn't help the man. We make these two characters bad guys. But they really are in a dilemma at the time. Their worldview, their way of seeing the world does not fit this man that's bloody and naked on the side of the road. But, Jesus said, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The Samaritans were some of the most hated people in Israel. When the Assyrians came and captured Israel, a lot of them were taken into exile. But some were left and forced to intermarry with the Samaritans, or with the the Assyrians. So you got people who are half conquerors and half Jewish. They're left there, and then when the exile finally comes back, the Samaritans sort of have their their same track of land right in the middle of Israel. And so the Samaritans were hated. They were half people that had conquered Israel. So he's journeying, journeying along the road. He seems to be alone, very dangerous for a Samaritan in Israel. And he sees the man. But instead of walking around like the priests, or like the Levite, something's different. He's moved with compassion. And he goes over and starts to bind up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. That was very typical sort of uh, medical treatment at that time. But it was very costly, right? Oil and wine are not cheap. Text continues. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Don't miss the great lengths that this Samaritan goes to. If he sets the man on his own animal, what does that mean he has to do? Walk. He's walking with this bloody guy that he doesn't know on his animal, on his way down to the city. He goes to an inn. There's not hotels. This is not a holiday inn. Okay? It's probably somebody who had a house with an extra room on it you can rent. Um, takes care of him there. If he is a Samaritan and goes into a Jewish town, 
he is not going to be well liked. He's not going to be well accepted. He's, very, he's in danger. And if this bloody person is a Jew, they're going to assume he did it. And they might even exact um, revenge on this person. This is very dangerous for this man. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Notice the next day. He changes his travel plans and stays overnight to take care of this man. Gives him two denarii. Um, Two denarii would have been a pretty good cost. Two denarii ought to keep that man there and taken care of with food for a week or two. I mean, it's a pretty substantial amount of giving that this person is doing. And he promises more if there are any on the way back. Jesus turns to that lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus responds to the man's questions the same way he did before, with a question back to him. Only he adds a story and says, which of these people was really kind to his neighbor? Notice the man, the lawyer, will not even stoop to say the Samaritan. What does he say? The one who showed mercy. The man won't admit that the Samaritan was the good guy because he'd be trapped now. He said a Samaritan was a... See, Jesus keeps trapping this man. Jesus is critiquing his worldview. Is it really about rules? Jesus even talks so strongly that he says that you should love your enemies. The Old Testament does not say that. In fact, Jesus is probably the first person to ever say that. And at this time, he's the only person saying that. No one would love their enemies. But, but earlier on in, in uh, both Matthew and Luke, early on, Jesus says that. This, this parable has been used to promote caring living. Sacrificing yourself for one another. And certainly the parable does that. And when you understand the details, man, this, this Samaritan goes above and beyond to care for this person. But it does more than that too, doesn't it? The parable is also critiquing in its context the legalism of this lawyer. Oddly enough, this parable is used then to create legalism on having to take care of your neighbor. Should you care about your neighbor? Yes. Does your neighbor need to be, or include anyone around you who is hurting? Absolutely. But the parable also asks us to to dig a little deeper. In fact, we've had this habit of reading ourselves into the role of the Samaritan. But the early church did not read the parable that way. The early church saw you and I as the person in the ditch. That we are the one who is broken and wounded. And Jesus is the Samaritan who sacrifices so much to heal and to save us. And I wonder too if we as Christians and we as a church are actually meant to be the innkeeper in the story. That Jesus goes out and saves us and saves others, but they come to us with wounds. And it's our job to heal and to take care of and that Jesus sustains us for that. So I wish I could give you a good ending for this parable. Just a one-liner about go do that. But I think it's a pretty complicated parable actually. And I think... The goal of the parable is for us to wrestle with it. So let me ask you a few questions instead. 
Where are you trying to test or push back against God's work in your life? Who are the hurting neighbors around you that you are passing by? Are you generous in helping others? Or do you keep, do you keep all your oils, wine, and denarii for yourself? Is your life defined and lived more by rules or by compassion? Who are the people that God has given you to help bind up their wounds and care for them? Where are you wounded and you are not letting God heal up your wounds? Has Jesus gotten you out of the ditch or are you still in the ditch? May God change you as you wrestle with this parable. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your parables, for your stories and for sucking us into them and haunting us, shaping us with them. Help us to live our lives differently because of your great love and compassion for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.